I start this morning with a sincere trigger warning to feminists. Sincere. We're in a passage of scripture that points to some of the differences between men and women. And when it comes to roles and responsibilities in the church and in the home. And uh, this week I have labored to read a variety of perspectives on this topic. And it's been, shall we say, informative. On this passage in 1 Corinthians, I've seen really good scholarship. And, and also within the boundaries of good scholarship, I've seen a variety of conclusions within the spectrum of conservative commentary on this passage. I've also encountered a number of uh, phrases like dethroning male headship or male headship is power and domestic violence and uh, patriarchal theologies are oppressive. And, and those, those phrases end up being just as unhelpful as actual chauvinism and bigotry at the end of the day. For some people who are gathered here in the room or if you're watching this online, I, I just want to say this message might be uncomfortable for you. But ultimately, here's, here's what I want to do. Thank you. I, I, I want to deliver and unpack the text of Scripture well so that even if it's uncomfortable for us, we still might receive the benefit of the meaning of the text and have the Holy Spirit apply these truths to our lives. That's why we're here. It's why we gather as the church. That, that ought to be the aim of every pastor and preacher in every church on Sunday morning. The goal of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus. And that means that the Spirit is always constantly changing us and making us more like Jesus. And we have the responsibility to yield to the Spirit and submit to His Word. Amen? You can tell my amen section is not here this morning. Amen. Yeah, that was, I'm going to need somebody to step up, okay, and fill in that gap. So let's, let me just say right out of the gate, male headship is not a function or a result of the fall of man. Male headship in the home and in the church is a function of God's design. Related to this topic, over my 25 years of ministry, the Lord led me to develop some working definitions that I think will be a help to us this morning because we talk about gender, we talk about men and women, but I don't hear many people in the church, even pastors, taking the time to define those realities. We just assume things about men, women, and gender. What I do hear are more and more voices being more and more vocal about asserting that there's no meaningful or real distinction to be made between men and women or gender. So I find, I, I just tell you up front, I find that idea abhorrent and foreign to God's design and to the text of the Bible, not to mention dangerous to our culture. You start erasing gender, we're just going down the, we're circling the toilet bowl at that point. So let's get right to defining our terms. Here's, here's my definition, my working definition of biblical femininity or biblical womanhood. It is the freeing disposition to receive, affirm, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in appropriate ways as you ladies nurture a passion for Christ and those around you and under your care and as you attain to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. That's womanhood. That's what you're called to, ladies. Men, biblical masculinity, 
biblical manhood is a calling to the glad assumption of responsibility, to lead courageously and to love sacrificially, to make war on your enemy and on sin, to safeguard the weak, to protect and serve wholeheartedly, and to nurture a passion for Christ in those around you and under your care, to attain to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Now, the guy's definition is a little longer because I'm a guy and I've given it more thought. I've had longer to chew on what it means to be a dude biblically than what it means to be a woman. I don't even, I've had to ask about that because I don't, I don't know, right? But I believe this is essential to our understanding of God's word and, and our understanding of ourselves and God's economy. And we need this clarity going forward because the world, the flesh, and the devil are in a full court press right now to wreck everything and confuse humanity. And so our understanding of this must include two, so- two concepts here this morning that are essential. We need to understand modesty and we need to understand propriety to understand this text. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to go all Jane Austen this morning. But the truth is we could do a little more with a little more Jane Austen and a little less Real Housewives of whatever town with too much disposable income. We could use more Jane Austen. So let's pick it up here in First uh, Corinthians 11, uh, verse 2. And remember that Paul has just given us the admonition to follow or imitate him as he follows and imitates Christ. So out of that here, verse 2, we read the text this morning down to verse 16. Paul says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if man wears his hair long, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Fun text. How are we going to sort this out? Well, one option is we could just get really legalistic. We could just we could just go we're all wearing black, dudes in suits, women in dresses, head, head coverings, the whole deal. But I, I don't think that's the heart of the text here. Let's go back to verse 2. Paul says, I commend you. He's speaking to the Corinthian church. I'm commending you because you remember me in everything. 
and you maintain the traditions that I've even as I've delivered them to you. So, so they're remembering Paul in everything that they do, and they're maintaining the traditions that Paul delivered to them. Tra- traditions, by the way, is defined as the transmission of customs and or beliefs from generation to generation, or the fact of being passed on in this way. This is tradition. Um, traditions change over time, with very few exceptions. But there were some application points Paul had made for the Corinthian church and those believers in particular that would serve to keep the church on course if they observed and obeyed them, if they embraced these. And so he's going to unpack some of what they are. But note verse 3 coming up next is not a tradition. Paul's going to make a statement of theological fact as a matter of priority. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So now we're dealing with the concept of headship or kephala. Uh, it, it's the position of chief authority. It's, it's a position of leadership. And, and I, just, I just want to, again, freely admit in this moment that to our 21st century American ears, this concept sounds archaic and outdated and unfair and misogynistic. And to that I say, so be it. So be it. It's God's word. I can't help what the culture thinks about biblical concepts. I can only teach the church how to think rightly about biblical concepts. And, and I mean, like, think about it. How could any pastor or Christian be reasonably expected in our day to explain and defend headship to and in a culture that believes that men can be women and women can be men? Like, there's no, there's no point in even trying to explain headship. They're living in a fantasy world. So the world doesn't need an explanation of headship. The world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. The culture needs the gospel. But beneath these traditions Paul mentions are some biblical axioms, some biblical principles that cannot be changed. And the reason we don't have the power or freedom to change them is because God is the one who put them in place. And it put them in place as part of the created order, which reflects his character and his will for humanity. God put the concept of headship in place in the church and in the home because headship is a reflection of the Trinity. It's a reflection of mutuality and the freedom of submission. Uh, headship we would define within the Trinity consisting of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We would say they are equal in value, different in roles. The Father did not die on the cross for your sins. The Son died on the cross for your sins. The Father does not come to live in you when you are regenerated. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you when you are regenerated. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit, and the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, so they are three beings that make up the one Godhead, not three gods, not three manifestations of God, but one God in three persons. The Trinity's a really tricky doctrine, and there are a lot of uh, heretical holes to fall into as you navigate that doctrine, if you're not careful. So headship uh, in the home is father Mother, children, equal in value before God as unique individuals made in the image of God, differing in roles and responsibility. If you send your five-year-old to work 40 hours a week to provide for your household, that's jacked up. You don't do that. 
There's, a, there's an order to this, right? Differing roles, differing responsibilities equal in value. What, I, what I've just laid out for you is, um, is called complementarianism. It's the idea that men and women complement each other in their relationships and in their roles in a given context. Okay? It's complementarianism. But what most people in our culture today embrace, and in many churches, is called egalitarianism. And that's the belief that men and women are not only equal in value, but they're equal in everything else as well. And they can do, they can each one do whatever they want to do. So I'll leave it to you to decide which which philosophy you adopt. But but here at Emmaus Road, we're going to teach and preach complementarity. Okay? Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, so there's some cultural things happening here that we don't really understand. Um, so let's dig into this. Paul is speaking to a very specific tradition that he had brought into the Corinthian church. The women would wear some form of a head covering when they gathered as the body of Christ, but the men would not. Now, this is a way of reflecting the created order and headship in the church. In the Corinthian culture, women normally wore a head covering as a symbol of their submission to their husbands. Not just in the church, as a culture. As a culture, this is a common practice. And so uh, Paul affirms the rightness of following that cultural expression. In fact, uh, to dispense with the head coverings on women would send the entirely wrong message to the culture at large. She, she might as well just shave her hair off because a woman who refused to wear a covering in that culture was basically saying, I refuse to submit to God's created order. Therefore, Paul's teaching the Corinthians that the wearing of a head covering by a woman in certain contexts was an outward indication of a submission, a submissive heart to God and to his established authority. She's just showing in a visual way that she submitted to God and, and his ways. So the result when a man would cover his head in the church is that he dishonored his head because the head of man is God. He, he would, the commentaries I've read this week said basically if, if a man was covering his head in prayer in the church, is basically indistinguishable. And the kind of coverings they wore, it's not just a little napkin on your head. It's like a veil, you know, a, a big piece of cloth. And so they look, the guys look feminine in that culture. It's the feminization of, of men in, to do that. And, and there are many cultures today, even, uh, even around the world, if you go on missions trips, especially you go into uh, former Soviet countries, you get over to Belarus, Ukraine, uh, go to Romania, you get out in some of the churches, especially out of the city and into the villages, this is still common practice in many churches for women to wear head coverings if they're married. And they're just demonstrating that they're under the authority of their husbands. They're, they're recognizing his headship. Um, but these women in this church were disgracing their husbands, and they were communicating to onlookers that they were immoral women. Whether they actually were or not was not the issue. They were, they were communicating that they were, and they were disgracing Christ by misrepresenting him to non-Christian onlookers. So the comparison or the picture that Paul uses here to illustrate how dishonorable this would be is a woman shaving her head. Now, again, we, we have some cultural elements and some timeless principles here that we need to navigate carefully 
Because we live in a 21st century American culture and what's normal for us or what's been normalized for us is not normal around the world or in other eras in the past. So the question that comes up is, should women, can women cut their hair short today? Yes, they can. But there is still an element of conflict between God's design and our culture's constantly changing standards of what is acceptable, what is normal, what is right. And so we get into this moment where we're, there's, there's an element of subjectiveness to this. I mean, what constitutes short? Off the shoulders, chin, what's short? Who decides? Who gets to decide what short is? So, so then you, you run into the other ditch of legalism really quickly, right? Because legalism is just as deadly to the faith as licentiousness is to the faith. And we want to keep the car on the road. We don't want to go into either ditch. Women cutting their hair short is not a sin. Women shaving their heads is not a sin. But those practices are, and I, and I want to be very careful about how I say this, those practices are generally rooted in in an idea of liberation from cultural norms whenever they manifest themselves in a given culture in history. That's a generalization, generally associated with bucking the norms, the social norms in a culture. So, uh, again, fairly normalized for us. Uh, we, we see a lot of women with short hair, and it's not a big deal in our culture. But 100 years ago in America, it, it would have been a big deal. Um, so in other ears and other places, it, it would have even been scandalous. We just need to understand that in the first century, when a woman was in public with her hair shorn or shaved, she would almost certainly have been a prostitute or at the very least under an oath or vow to some pagan God that required her to sacrifice her hair. So this is what they're seeing when they're seeing women with heads uncovered or women with short hair in that culture there's a, there's a connection to infidelity or a connection to sin and licentiousness that we don't necessarily have in our culture. Do you see the difference? I, wanna, I just want to make sure that that's, that's really clear for us. But this tradition that Paul's instituted in that culture at that time is for the sake of propriety and, and order in the church. But, but lest we miss the forest for the trees, Paul is also clearly saying here, and we skip right over it often, Women can and should pray and prophesy in the church, in public settings like the one we're in now. Paul says they should do that. They should have that opportunity not to preach and teach the word of God in mixed settings like this, but to pray publicly. And I got really convicted this week. I was like, you know, I, I haven't scheduled people for the generosity moment. I, I typically just do it because I forget about it until Friday or Saturday, and then it's too late to ask somebody else to do it. And, and, um, and I'm, you know what? We really need to invite some of our women in the church to, to take that generosity moment and to pray for the church in those moments. It's something that we need. It's something that the text of Scripture calls us to, that we just, out of neglect, out of out of for whatever reason. We just haven't done that as much as we ought to have done. 
And we talk about this uh, women prophesying and praying in public. Somebody will object. They'll skip ahead to 1 Corinthians 14, 34 about women remaining silent in the church. And we'll, we'll unpack that when we get there. But the simple explanation is that that text in 14 is calling for women to be silent because in that context, in that church, they were constantly interrupting the, the pastor in the middle of a sermon because they were asking questions that their husbands should have been answering at home for them in the context of, of home life. And so the pastor couldn't get through a 40-minute sermon or, or an hour-long sermon. It was taking double the time. And it's just like, look, this isn't the, the time for that, right? Uh, guys, buck up and study the Word and help your family understand the Word. Um, so the burden is on the men to read and teach their families the Word of God. But coming back to this point, there was a role for women in the weekly gathering of the body of Christ. That's a big deal. That's a big deal because when a lot of people think about headship, male headship, they just clear all that out. It's like, no, there's a place for women in the gathering. So the main reason why Paul argues that they should wear veils or coverings, th this is it. He argues that they should voluntarily limit their freedom by observing this custom so that others will not be hindered in coming to Christ. This is, the, this is the heart, this is the contextual principle in which all of his comments have been grounded all the way back to chapter 6. Paul's been stressing this principle over and over, even though in Christ we are free, we should be willing to limit our freedom out of love for others so that they can benefit spiritually, so that they can hear the gospel, so that they have the opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, we just keep going on here. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And here's the reason for this particular cultural expression of a timeless reality about headship and authority. Man is the image and glory of God. Woman was made from man. Neither was man created for woman, but the other way around. And so the appeal here is rooted in the created order, not the fall, the creation. And the argument that Paul is making is that headship is God's good design for biological families and for faith families, the local church. And since the text mentions God's relationship within the Trinity and, and also with man as part of the hierarchy, we should start with God. We come to this relationship of God the Father and Jesus Christ and we find them as equals. We find the Father and the Son as equals. And yet, again, we, we mentioned this previously, but there is a distinction or a difference in, in the beings that they are and in the roles that they take. There is no difference in value. There's no difference in ability. Uh, there's no difference in essence or godness about them, but only in the roles that they take. And the differing roles within the Trinity in no way diminish the value of the members of the Trinity. See, we just can't wrap our brains around that because we have assumed in our culture that to diminish a person's uh, role, what they who they are in a, in a hierarchy to come down is to diminish who they are. And that's just not the way this works. This model that's given to us here in, in Scripture is given that we might understand roles in the church and the family. See, God looks at men and women and he sees equals. He sees equals. We're equally valued. Uh, men and women are equals in value before God as we both bear the image of God. 
men and women are both equally loved by God. He doesn't love guys more. In fact, I'm prone to think he loves women more because we're boneheads sometimes. It's like we do enough stupid things. He's like, oh my gosh, dudes. Right? Both are equally loved by God, but men are given specific roles and specific responsibilities in the context of the home and the church that are not given to women and vice versa. And this is why the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What is that about? The angels? So this head covering at church at this time and in this culture signified the reality related to authority and submission. And and now as 21st century Americans that don't like those words, authority and submission, we're, we're wrestling with this text. And those are dirty words, right? They undercut and undermine our autonomy. I like my autonomy. I want my freedom. Well, let's just start with autonomy. And you can just go ahead and throw it out the window because you're not an autonomous being. You are a contingent being. There's no one here in this room who is truly autonomous except God himself. You're a contingent being. You're contingent upon God having made you and you're contingent upon him keeping you alive. In him we live and move and have our being and not only as Christians, but every human being that's alive on the planet right now, breathing air by God's will and by God's grace is contingent. But what if I told you there's a particular freedom that only comes from submission? There's a particular freedom that you can only experience in submission. And we just can't wrap our brains and hearts around that as Americans. Which is why we need the word of God to change us and shape us. It's something worth considering. Something worth pursuing. And Paul's saying here that a woman's natural covering is her long hair, which is her glory. However, when she's praying or prophesying in the church, she should wear an artificial covering to cover that glory as a symbol that she's under authority. But why is that important to angels? Well, Peter helps us with this a little bit. First Peter 1, 10 to 12. Peter says, you know, concerning this thing about salvation and all the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was coming to you, that was going to be yours, they searched and they inquired really carefully and they were inquiring about what person and at what time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. They're all looking ahead going, when is that going to happen? What is that going to look like? What is that going to mean for humanity? And and, and so it was revealed to them, verse 12, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven to the church. It's like we're the recipients. We get to see it clearly. All this good news that the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And And then he tags this on at the very end of verse 12. He said, things into which angels long to look. The angels aren't saved. They don't, they don't respond to the gospel. They're fallen or they're unfallen. Those are the categories of angels. And they watch humanity. They watch these, these image bearers made in God's image. They watch us live our lives and the way God interacts with us and loves us and comes into us by the Holy Spirit when we, when we respond to the gospel. And, and scripture says they're just dumbfounded. They're amazed. It's just like, I can't get enough of this. I can't stop watching daytime television down on planet Earth. It's just, I'm, I'm sucked into this thing, watching p- the flesh bags walk around with the Holy Spirit in them. I don't know what that's about. That's crazy. 
This relationship with God, with mankind, is something the angels watch and learn from. And therefore, in this passage, in this context, a woman's submission to God's delegated authority over her is an example to the angels. And apparently from the text, the angels have a deep longing to continue to look into these things and understand these realities. I look forward to having many conversations with angels someday. Nevertheless, verse 11, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So even though there's this hierarchy of authority, there is also mutuality. Gentlemen, we need the women that God has placed in our lives. We are not called to lord it over them. I know, I've done that a time or two and regretted it. Jesus will spank your rear end. He, he will not hesitate. The fact of the matter is, no man would be in this room right now if it were not for a woman. We need to think about it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, ladies. Thank you for birthing us. That was weird. <laughs> Sometimes you just don't think too much about what you're going to say. But maybe we should. God didn't give men a possession of headship to lord it over women. That's not the purpose. Just as it is within the Godhead, so it is within humanity. Men and women are equal in value, but different in roles. Uh, I, I was thinking about this this week, and I remembered a moment where I was really jealous of Jen. When we, we were having our kids, and, and, and for a hot second, I was frustrated that Jen got to nurse our babies and bond with them in a way that I didn't. And then I learned about mastitis. And which is a painful blockage of the milk ducts. And, and then I was glad that we were not the same. I was happy that we were not the same. All right, there's just things like that. Where we just think, if I, could just, if I could just be that, if I could be, I would be happy if I could have the thing that I can't have. And God says, just be who I made you to be. Be content. Be content. Judge for yourselves, verse 13. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. And if anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So Paul's leaving this issue with the reader, assuming that he or she will come to the right conclusions about propriety and modesty in the home and in the church. If a woman refused to wear a head covering or if she shaved her head, she was making a statement that she was not submitted to the authorities God placed over her and the Lord in that culture. And she sent a message loud and clear to the men in the church. She wasn't going to submit to their headship, their leadership uh, under her pastor, under the elders. So w what do we take away for us in our context? Let me just give you a couple of takeaways this morning. In our culture today, we no longer view a woman's wearing of a head covering as a sign of submission. Uh, clearly, that's never been a practice at Emmaus Road. We've never engaged in that. In most modern societies, head coverings are a personal choice, not something that should be used to judge a person's spirituality. The real issue here is the heart attitude of obedience to God's authority and submission to his established order as unto the Lord. That's, that's Ephesians 5.22 in the context of talking about marriage and roles. The wife is to submit to the husband as unto the Lord. God is far more concerned with an attitude of submission than an outward display of submission through a head covering. 
He cares more about our hearts than our outward expression. And we see this plainly in, in a verse like 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Uh, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, look, I, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. He's not saying women can't braid their hair. He's like, don't let your adorning be external only. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 3. Don't let your adorning be only external, but let it be an adorning of a, of a, of a beautiful and gentle and quiet spirit and a heart that's towards God. That's what's beautiful in God's sight. That's, why, that's what he wants for the women who've put their faith in him. So there's number one. Uh, we no longer, we no longer uh, view head coverings as that sign of submission in our culture. Secondly, male headship in the home and in the church is still a reality God calls us to. Someone will ask, well, wh- why is the issue of headship transcendent, but the issue of head coverings merely cultural? And it's a fair question, and it has a good answer. Because Paul only indirectly uses the argument from creation to affirm head coverings for women. But there's a direct application of his reasoning to show that the creation affirms gender and role distinctions between men and women. We were made differently. Man was made first, and then woman from man. Therefore, Paul's argument from creation demonstrates men and women are distinct and cannot be culturally, this can't be culturally relegated. It's not just a cultural thing, it's a creation thing. But the application of this principle now, the form that it takes, in this case head coverings, can and does change with culture. It's an application point. It's not the reality of the principle itself. The principle is God made man and women separately, and he made man in his image from the dust of the ground, and then he made woman from man. That's a creation reality. This is an application point culturally, this this head covering. So there's one and two, and then here's here's the third one. And ladies, you'll be glad to hear this. There are limitations to male headship. It doesn't mean that we have carte blanche to do whatever we want to do. And I know a lot of guys who take it that way. I had one young adult in a former church who was very angry at me for preaching this principle of male headship because she misunderstood it. And she thought that she had to submit and obey to every man in the church. And when we finally talking through this issue and got to that point and and I was so relieved when she said that because now I knew where the problem was and it was a total misunderstanding. I said, listen, you don't, you don't have to obey every man in the church. That's ludicrous. That's not what this means. Poor girl, she was just so overwhelmed at the thought of that. And I, and I realized how stressed it had made her. And, and so headship is, is applicable in the home if you're the wife of a husband or the child of a father. And, and that doesn't mean that the man's a dictator. It doesn't mean that he controls everything. If he's wise, and it takes dudes a couple of decades to get there usually, if he's wise, he'll be a consultant who on occasion has to make a final decision instead of being the constant decision maker who occasionally trusts his wife. Wisdom, gentlemen. Headship applies in the church in relationship to your pastors and elders assuming that they meet the biblical criteria and standards and requirements for that office. And here at Emmaus Road, they do. So this is how it works. Lastly, to the dudes, to the men, headship is a responsibility, not a right. Not a right. Headship is the authority to serve, 
and the opportunity to lead if you can humble yourself. You've got to humble yourself enough to take that responsibility on, and that requires a great deal of humility, gentlemen, to be sure. A great deal of humility. So I'll just remind you, ladies, that you are called to the freeing disposition to receive, affirm, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in appropriate ways as you nurture a passion for Christ and those around you and under your care, as you attain to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Gentlemen, you also are called to the glad assumption of responsibility to lead courageously, to love sacrificially, to make war on your enemies and on sin and to safeguard the weak and protect and serve wholeheartedly and to nurture a passion for Christ and those around you and under your care to attain to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. I believe, I said this again, I believe this is essential to our understanding of God's word and to our understanding of ourselves and God's economy. We need this clarity, church. We need this clarity going forward because the world and the flesh and the devil are in a full court press trying to wreck this whole thing and confuse humanity at this moment in time. And by God's grace, we as the church of Jesus Christ will reflect him. We'll reflect his design to a watching world. So, so we keep slogging through the dysfunction of the Corinthian church. We just stay with this, right? Because there's a lot to be learned for us in 21st century America from the Corinthian church. We stand a we stand to learn a great deal from them about ourselves, not just about them, but about us. And we tackle church matters because church matters. Amen? All right, well, let's pray. Father, we, again, we just submit ourselves to you. This is your word. Sometimes we don't like your word. We're just getting real honest. We read it. We go, I don't like that. I don't like what that means for me. I don't like the implications of that for my family. I, I, I don't want to obey or embrace these truths. But Lord, what you have for us, even though it can be hard at times, is ultimately for our good. If we will believe in faith and trust you, that there are some principles uh, here in your word that are, that are for our flourishing. We think they're restrictive and oppressive and And actually, they're for our good. They're for our freedom. Lord, would you give us the grace to embrace these things, to think about these things rightly and and apply them to our lives by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a freedom here if we'll have it. We no longer view a woman's wearing of a head covering as a sign of submission in the church. Male headship is still a reality God calls us to in the church and in the home. And that arrangement reflects the relationship within the Godhead to a watching world if we'll model it correctly. So gladly submit yourselves to the authorities God has placed over you within the boundaries He has set. And if you do this, you will succeed in making Jesus known to your neighbors and the nations. Mashro Church, you are sent.